What year is this? Kind of, kind of. Eh, so like 2004, 2005, you know, 06. So um, still when there's plenty of, plenty of good stuff and Dusty's available. Oh man, if I could tell you how much I left on that shelf, you know, how much I just said 60 bucks. I don't want to pay 60 bucks for her 16 year old. That's insane. Why would I do that? <laughs> This is episode 271 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews of people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And before we start today's podcast with Clay Risen, here's your weekly bourbon news update. On September 24th, from 7 to 9 p.m., the Speed Art Museum is hosting its annual Art of Bourbon. This will be a live bourbon auction event taking place online, and guests can log in to the live stream production and place bids in real time. Some of the items up for grabs is a barrel selection with Maker's Mark and Knob Creek, an old tailor from the 1960s, and a Michter's 25-year-old, all hosted and emceed with Fred Minnick. You can get pre-registered and join online at artofbourbon.com. The bourbon distillery in Owensboro, once known as OZ Tyler, is rebranding to its original name, Green River Distilling Company. Founded by John W. McCulloch in 1885, it was DSP KY-10. Now, the distillery has endured fire, prohibition, multiple owners, and a period of decline to now reemerge today as it returns to its original name. Now, moving on to bourbon release news, and hold on because we got a lot to cover today. The much-anticipated Buffalo Trace Antique Collection has been announced, and here's your cliff notes. George T. Stagg comes in at 130.4 proof from barrels filled in the spring of 2005, making it 15 years old. Storage locations of these barrels varied across warehouses L, K, and Q. William LaRue Weller was distilled in the winter of 2008, making it 12 years old, and aged in warehouses I and C, and this bourbon registers at 134.5 proofs. Thomas H. Handy, distilled in the spring of 2014, makes it 6 years old, and aged in warehouses K, M, and N, and weighs in at 129.0 proof. Eagle Rare 17 is, of course, 17 years old and will be returning at 101 proof. Sazerac 18 is, as you know, 18 years old. These were filled in the spring of 2002 and it rested on the third floor of Warehouse K and it will be bottled at 90 proof. The 2020 Buffalo Trace Antique Collection whiskeys will be available in limited quantities starting in late September or early October with a suggested retail price of $99 each. In September, Michter's Distillery will be releasing a limited amount of the US-1 Toasted Barrel Finish Rye. Selected rye barrels were dumped and put in a second single barrel assembled from 24-month naturally seasoned and air-dried wood that was then custom toasted. The average barrel proof for the toasted rye barrels bottled for this release is 109.2 and it will retail for $85. Heaven Hills announced its latest release of the Parker's Heritage Collection. And this year, it's a 10-year-old heavy char bourbon. This 14th edition continues to use Heaven Hill's traditional bourbon mash bill of 78% corn, 12% malted barley, and 10% rye, but this time aged in heavy char considered level five. And these barrels consisted of 102 of them aged on the sixth floor of Rick House Y for around 10 years. It will be bottled at 120 proof and will ship nationally beginning in September with an estimated SRP of around $120. Heaven Hill will again contribute a portion of the proceeds from each bottle sold to the ALS Association. 
More from Heaven Hill is the Elijah Craig Beer Barrel Finish that was in partnership with the Goose Island Beer Company. Only three barrels were used to finish this bourbon. The freshly emptied barrels of Elijah Craig traveled to Chicago to age Goose Island Bourbon County Stout that was actually released on Black Friday in 2018. And these barrels traveled back to Kentucky for a third life, finishing fully matured Elijah Craig small batch for 10 months. They were bottled in the traditional Elijah Craig 200 ml packaging, or better known as the Elijah Craig grenades, at 94 proof, and there's a virtual tasting experience that retails for $39.99. Now moving on to Brown Foreman, King of Kentucky is returning with its third edition. King of Kentucky was established in 1881 as a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Brown Foreman acquired the brand in 1936 from selected Kentucky distillers, and by 1940 had converted it to a blended whiskey until it was discontinued in 1968. In 2018, Brown Foreman revived the lapsed label, paying homage to the brand's past. Historically only available in Kentucky, this year's expression will also be available in limited quantities in select markets in Illinois and Ohio. The 2020 expression will be 14 years old, will produce around 2,200 bottles with a suggested retail price of $250. Woodford Reserve is releasing its newest Woodford Reserve Four Grain, which is a blend of four types of Woodford. Woodford Bourbon, Woodford Rye, Woodford Malt, and Woodford Wheat Whiskey. This is part of the annual distillery series, which master distiller Chris Morris created to highlight Woodford Reserve's creative line of complex offering. This 375 milliliter expression costs $50 a bottle, $49.99, and is available via curbside pickup at the Woodford Reserve Distillery starting on Wednesday, September 16th, and orders can be placed online, but it will also be available in small quantities at Kentucky retailers. And lastly, the Basil Hayden 10-year featuring Jim Beam's High Rye Recipe is making its annual return to shelves nationwide, of course, in limited quantities with a suggested retail price of $70. Whew, that was a lot of bourbon release news. So for today's podcast, we talked to Clay Risen, and he's not new to the bourbon scene. He's written a ton of articles and books, but he somehow narrowly escaped being a guest on this podcast. We talk about some of his past book, but we also want to touch on his newest book, The Impossible Collection of Whiskey, The 100 Most Exceptional and Collectible Whiskey Bottles. And this will be coming out in October of 2020. So start bookmarking it now for your future reading endeavors. And so, of course, we talk about chasing unicorns and the stories that those paths have taken. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Lots of people are finding out that they love bourbon more and more every day. We want to make sure they're in tune, just like you. With that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. About 12 years ago, I was in Cognac, France, part of a, a group uh, testing out new glasses, new glassware, to find out what was the best, the best glass to sip Cognac out of. And during that time... We discussed all types of things that you do when you're together with a bunch of professionals. And the one thing we found ourselves doing was analyzing and comparing cognac to Kentucky bourbon. Twelve years ago, the cognac industry was an absolute jealousy of bourbon. They looked at the Kentucky bourbon trail and the fan groups that were coming from all over the world to visit distilleries. They looked at that and they said, why can't we do that? 
And here's the thing, there's, there's unity in, in cognac, but there's also division. One distillery hates another, one old French family hasn't talked to another one since, you know, some type of uh, family feud in the 1820s. And that division has always kept cognac from coming together and competing against bourbon on, like, the tourism stage. And so for all of bourbon's flaws, for all of the things that we talk about regarding price points and hype and uh, saturation of from particular distillers, the one thing that we can always count on is that when push comes to shove, whether it's prohibition, whether it's creating a tourism industry, whether it's COVID, whether it's an election that has consequences, uh, no matter which way it goes, the bourbon distillers will always come together. And on Bourbon Heritage Month, remember that, that they may be competitors, but at the end of the day, they do support one another. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, do you have a bourbon buddy or spouse or someone that supports you in your bourbon journey? Take a picture of them with you two together and uh, share it on social media and tag Bourbon Pursuit and Fred Minnick so we can comment on it. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And we're back with an episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Just kind of here today, but this is okay because this is somebody that I have actually talked to previously that when we did a barrel selection together for Pinhook not too long ago, and somebody that I've admired for a long time, one of the well-known whiskey writers uh, for a while, and it'll be kind of interesting to kind of understand more about his background, how he got into this sort of world as well, and his new book that's going to be coming out. Plus, we're going to probably go in a few different directions because he's got a a fun new job title that we might <laughs> might have to dive into a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> so with that, I'll introduce our guest today. So today is Clay Risen. Clay is the new senior politics editor at the New York Times, was also previously the deputy op-ed editor at the New York Times. So Clay, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. But you're also not new to writing books. I mean, you've written some uh, on whiskey in the past, right? So oh, yeah. kind of talk, you know, kind of give us the titles of those before I kind of uh, dive into this. Yeah, topic. sure. So my two previous books were American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye, A Guide to the Nation's Favorite Spirit, which uh, it came out in 2013 and then did an update for at the end of 2015. So that's kind of due for a new uh, a new edition. Uh, and then the other came out um, about a year and a half ago. It was called Single Malt Guide to the Whiskies of Scotland. And yeah, and now I'm working on you know this book and then a couple of other projects sort of down the pipe. Well, that's awesome. So before we get into that, uh, we always start this new season with kind of like a, a fun icebreaker. So your question for you is, if you could be best friends with any celebrity, who would it be? Oh, man. You know what? You know who I, you know, you know, you always look at celebrities and you go, God, I really wish that, I really hope that person is a nice person because, you know, I want it. And for me, it's always been uh, Ted Danson. Like, I, oh, nice. I hear that he's a super nice guy, uh, but I, he's one of the few people, probably Ted Danson and Michael Keaton in terms among actors. Like, I will watch them in anything, no matter how bad the movie. I know the movie will be that much better because they're in it. And uh, Ted Danson just strikes me as a super nice, super down-to-earth guy. Um, you know, I hope that's true. And uh, if it's true, I'd love to, you know, <laughs> in, in an ideal world, I'd be uh, best buddies with him. Did you watch uh, that show he came out with called The Good Place? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, that would be the epitome of, like, who you'd want to meet and be like, he's, he's almost like too nice. You're like, I mean, uh, if I can geek out a little bit. Uh, so if, if you've ever seen or any of your listeners have ever seen Body Heat, uh, which is a you know, this neo-noir movie from the early 80s. And it's got William I Hurt. Think I, and I don't Ka think I caught this one. Oh, man, it's so good. Uh, but it's uh, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Turner and William Hurt. And uh, it's a remake of Double Indemnity. But uh, but Ted Danson steals this movie. And there's one scene, there's really this really tense close-up scene William Hurt and Kathleen Turner are, you know, he's starting to realize she's going to, she's looking to, to, um, you know, screw him over. And, you know, the, so it's focused on them. And in the background, Ted Danson just walks out and in between the two of them starts dancing. And it's one of those ice, you know, those sort of uh, Easter egg kind of things. Like you probably wouldn't notice, but if you do, you'll never not notice it again. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's one of those things where you just go, yeah, I bet he didn't have to do that, but he just started doing it, and that's his brilliance. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I, you know, Ted Danson, we haven't heard that one yet. It's funny because I, I talk about these icebreakers of people, and I, I go with my wife, and I talk to other people, and Ted Danson's the first one that's came up about that. And oh, so is Michael Keaton. I haven't yeah. heard Michael Keaton as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, because you want to hang out with the original Batman. Of is, course. Is that yeah. yeah. You want to hang out with the original Batman, want to hang out with Beetlejuice. I mean, you know, what's not to love? I agree. See, for me... I, I've always I've thought about this one for a while, and uh, I think Justin Timberlake would actually just be a cool I bet, guy. I bet that's I, right. I, I mean, he's just he's just very uh, you know he's just he can do all, so many things. You know, he can act, he's funny, he can sing. He oh yeah, get, probably gets you into like the coolest places. So it's just like <laughs> he, I mean, I just think he'd be like the yeah, cool guy. I bet, I bet yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's a good choice. So so back to kind of talk about whiskey a little bit, and 
No, I kind of want to touch on the books thing because, you know, you said that you have one of your books that you're like, oh, okay, it needs kind of like a refresh renewal. And I know you're friends with with Fred Minnick as well. And you all, uh, you know, talk about a lot of different things in regards of, you know, uh, you know, either writing forwards for each other or just, you know, looking for each other's, you know, helping with advice and stuff like that. Now, when you talk about having to like redo things, are you, is it like a, it's like, we have to like go grocery shopping, like you, you run out of run out of an onion and got to go to another one. I mean, is it just like it has to, the the information has to be refreshed all the time? Well, I mean, I think particularly with my, with the Scotch book, I, you know, that one's going to be, that one's going to have a shelf life for a long time because Scotch doesn't change that much. You know, a few expressions come up here and there, but, you know, and there are a few new distilleries uh, that have popped up in recent years, but generally it's, it's a pretty mature established industry, you know, bourbon or American whiskey is, uh, you know, is not that. I mean, you do, you do obviously have the big distilleries, but you have any number of distilleries that, you know, have, uh, have really come onto the scene just in the last couple of years where all of a sudden they're doing these, you know, I'll drink these, you know, what, what I would, I don't mean this to mean, to demean anybody, but these sort of random bottles will show up, um, from distilleries that, you know, that made their own stuff. This is not, and you know, this is not MGP stuff. Uh, but maybe they've been sitting on it. It's been, they've been trying to do it on the quiet. Anyway, just amazing things. There's a lot of dynamism in the industry. And so for me, the big thing for me is that, you know, here's this, I, I've got this book and, and a lot of what's in the book is still current. Um, but yeah, I'd really like to go in and give some shout outs and give some assessment of some of these new, these new distilleries that are out there. And, you know, it's funny, part of the problem is that, and I, I, I hesitate to say this because it under, you know, it sort of sounds like it's undercutting myself, but, uh, uh, my publisher for obvious reasons, you know, they don't see a need to do a new edition because the book continues to sell. And so I'm trying to tell them like, ah, but we need to edit, you know, we need to keep it updated and and fresh. And they say, ah, you know, we don't see the financial need to do that. So get back to us when no one's buying the book anymore. So I don't want to tell anybody, don't buy the book. But, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if you don't buy the book, I will, it's more likely I'll update it at some point. So, you know, uh, it's kind of a weird paradox to be caught in. I would imagine that this is, see, I'm in the tech side. And so writing a book in tech means that it's obsolete in like six months to a year. And so I would imagine that it starts getting that way with whiskey eventually, because there are so many every year, there's uh, so many new releases. And as you'd mentioned, there's craft distillers and so many people coming on the scene. You know, if you were writing about Wilderness Trail two years ago, odds are their product is a lot different oh. than it is today. So you've got to change grading. You've got to change all this stuff because when you're going from something that's a four-year product to a six-year product, it's going to be completely different. A absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, I always intended my book to be sort of for the, uh, the interested and somewhat informed newcomer. Uh, you know, it really wasn't for people who are really into whiskey already, who already knew, um, you know, what's what. And, you know, so a lot of the book is introductory in terms of, you know, the reviews of individual expressions, I think is valuable, and it really helps people understand kind of what's out there. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is is the profiles of the distilleries, a lot of it's the background information. And I think that's what people continue to find valuable. Uh, and I think is, is important, because you still have huge numbers of people who are coming into, you know, whiskey fandom for the first time. 
and they want to know, you know, where's a, where's a, what's one book I can read? They'll sort of give me a good overview of what's out there and maybe can give me some pointers in terms of what I should start drinking. I mean, there's a big caveat at the opening of the book, which is, you know, even when I wrote it, it was not comprehensive. And, you know, I said, look, you should use this book as kind of a launching point. You know, you should, you know, there's 300 some odd expressions in there. Uh, you should explore these, you know, go with the ones I like, try the ones I don't like, see what you think. And then from there, you know, bounce off that and start to explore other things. So, you know, I really try to position it as a, as a gateway rather than kind of as a, a doorstop. Clay, I'd say 300 is a pretty big gateway. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Although when you look at it, you know, today it's, uh, I mean, I don't even know. I'm working on a book uh, kind of in this series. Like I look at these two, the Scotch bur- book and the bourbon book is, is kind of a series. They're the same. I do it with the same team, uh, same tasting panel, same design team. Uh, they look the same. They just have little tweaks. Uh, so I'm working on another one uh, that's about rye, American rye. And, you know, even there, I'm looking at 220 expressions and that's wow. that itself is not comprehensive. Uh, you know, that, that one's, that was pretty close. Uh, but there's a lot of just rye out there. Uh, and that's just one subset of the American whiskey industry. So I think, you know, a book like mine, if I updated it and didn't apply some new criteria, uh, to what I chose to include, you know, I'd be looking at easily upwards of a thousand, uh, a thousand bottles, and even that wouldn't be comprehensive. You know, we know there's much more than that. But even, a, you know, a thousand would be sort of in terms of, you know, here's basically 98% of what's on the dance floor. Um, so, yeah, it's I mean, it's an exciting time to be in whiskey. But it's like you said, you know, it's, it's tough to think about, well, how do you write a book that is kind of this snapshot of the industry uh, that, you know, in, by certain measurements will be obsolete pretty quickly? And I guess to kind of follow on with that is when you think about the rye category and you think about just American rye, like we're not even talking like the stuff that's imported from Canada that people rebottle yeah. and stuff like that. But when you do look at, I mean, you said over like 200 expressions or something like that yeah. of, of rye. I yeah. mean, A, I'm going to ask how, because there's MGP that is like this big monstrosity that supplies, mm-hmm. it seems like 75% of what's on the shelf today. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is... uh you know, when I when I do write it, a lot of it will have to be uh, come with an asterisk or a caveat that, you know, this obviously I would say this is MGP or or this is sourced if I don't know what the source is. But, you know, these days people are more transparent than they used to be about what's in the bottle. Um, you know, that said, I think that the better people, uh, the better um, distilleries who are drawing on MGP, you know, are doing it in a very conscientious way. They're really uh, you know, trying to blend mash bill or, you know, blend, uh, expressions rather than just sort of take whatever MGP gives them. Um, so all that has to be noted, but I'll tell you, I mean, there's, there is a, there are a lot more distilleries who are making their own rye and I'm surprised because I, I'm not a distiller, but I've always been told rye is, uh, is a heck of a thing to work with. Uh, but I think that, you know, if, if I could just sort of take it on the surface, like, I think that's a, uh, a measure of the um, the kind of the rapid growth in skills uh, among distillers out there that you get these distilleries that, you know, maybe they started making gin, then they started making bourbon, and now they're tackling rye. The flip side is rye ages really well at a young age, or, you know, it doesn't take long to make a, a pretty tasty rye. Uh, you know, there's tons of two-year-old rye out there that's really good. There's not that much two-year-old bourbon that's that good. Oh, no. 
And, you know, on the, the topic of being really sticky to work with, I can tell you from personal experience, I remember being at New Riff uh, early days and they were sitting there and they had rye in the fermentation tanks and it just was spilling out. Like it was like, just like bread going over yeah. the sides and just, it just kept going and they were just hosing it down, trying to get rid of it. And so they, they do say it takes a, it's a really sticky kind of thing to, uh, to work with. Yeah. There. It's like looking, working with bubble gum. So a question for you is that if you are looking at some of these ryes that, you know, of course, I totally agree that you are in a good category that if you have a four-year rye, odds are it's going to taste a lot better than your four-year bourbon. What are some of those ones that you've been kind of privy to that you want to uh, kind of share some secrets? Well, I mean, you know, you said New Riff, like New Riff kills it. I mean, their rye is fantastic. Um, and, you know, and I think Wilderness Trail, um, you know, is doing really well. Um, just, you know, that that kind of young, relatively new distillery that just, you know, Peerless is really good. Um, you know, they're just places that I think had the number really early about this is what you've got. And obviously those people are, though the distilleries are new, uh, they're, they brought some, you know, a pretty good game uh, to begin with, you know, good, the right people behind it, a good amount of capital. Uh, they weren't rushing product out. Uh, so, you know, it's not surprising that they've got really good, really good stuff. I really like the Balcones rye, uh, which has been out for a little while, but, uh, but is also a young rye and, uh, was, you know, something that they did, you know, after doing all their other stuff and, and, you know, it's really kind of a post chip tape project. Uh, I think it tastes fantastic. Uh, it's very different from the stuff coming out of Kentucky, but, you know, I also think that that's one of the things that's really exciting about rye is, um, you know, it's a, like there, you know, obviously everyone has their house flavor, their house profile when it comes to bourbon. Um, but you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a neophyte, if you're not really a whiskey person, um, I just think that you're going to taste a lot more nuance and difference when it comes to rye than you will necessarily with bourbon. Like there's, you know, bourbon, bourbon mash bills tend, I mean, we, you and I can tell the difference and we all can sort of assess what's this and that, but for me, rye just, you know, it, depending on who makes it, depending on, you know, the, I just think the mash bills taste very different. Um, age has a huge impact from, you know, that early, you know, two to four years. So I just, I just think there's, there's a lot of potential there for rye to be a category that, you know, even though it's very specific, you know, rye whiskey, uh, there's a lot of potential for differentiation uh, in rye that, um, you know, may, we can argue about whether it's there with bourbon, but I think it's definitely there with rye. And it's kind of funny that rye still doesn't get the the love and attention that bourbon gets today. I mean, when you go to the store and you've got bourbon, 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 I mean, it's just like you want to, they have all the signs and then like over here, like, okay, and here's everything with a green label yeah. to, to, to signify rye. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still something that people are learning about. Um, it does have the stigma of being spicy and, you know, again, that's a term of art that, you know, you and I know means a particular thing. Other people think, well, I don't like hot peppers, so I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's not that kind of spicy necessarily. Um, but you know, it falls in that category or in that type of categories like mezcal, like peated scotch, uh, where people just kind of assume, you know, assume the max you know, oh, rye is spicy. Oh, you know, this is going to be a spice bomb. Well, you know, great rye is 
cover the you know run the gamut and you've got rides that are so silky smooth uh but people are turned off by kind of the first words they hear in the same way that people think, Oh, mezcal's really, uh, really spicy. And, or I mean, really smoky and, 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 you know, robust exactly what I was and, to say. yeah, it's like, well, you know, yes it is, but great mezcal is all over the place. Um, it just has a wide range. Peated scotch, same thing, you know, German Riesling, you know, everyone thinks, ah, oh, German Riesling tastes like, you know, sucking on a, a sugar ball. Well, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, some of it does but some of it's very dry and, and very approachable. So I just think rye has to get over that. Uh, and, and it is, I think it, I think that's where you see all, you know, some pretty significant growth rates. Uh, you see all these distilleries really not just doing rye as an adjunct, like, Oh, well, we've got, also, you know, we're also doing rye, like, but bourbon is still our thing. You see a lot more places saying, no, rye is our, rye is our jam. Yeah. And so let's roll back the clocks a little bit here. How did you become, that de facto whiskey guy. I mean, did it was this something that, that like you latched onto early on in your career and you liked it, started writing about it, or was it like uh, your yeah. time? Like, hey, we need we need somebody that knows whiskey. I mean, it's a little bit of all that. So I was, you know, probably through the two thousands. Um, you know, I grew up in Nashville, and even when I moved away, I ended up spending a lot of time back home. My brother was there, and you know, we just really started. He and I, particularly, just really started getting into whiskey. Uh, just as you know, and I was living in DC at the time, uh, which, uh, back then had a, I guess it still does, uh, was just a great place to kind of dusty hunt before dusty hunting was a thing. You know, you could get really good bottles, but pretty cheap. Uh, Nashville was the same way. And so, you know, we just had access to a lot of really good stuff early on. Uh, we would drive up into Kentucky, visit all the distilleries. And so it started off as just this, you know, it's the same story that everyone has is sort of how do you get into what, being a fan? What year is this? Kind of, kind of, eh, so like 2004, 2005, you know, 06. So um, still when there's plenty of, plenty of good stuff and Dusty's available. Oh man, if I could tell you how much I left on that shelf, you know, how much I just said 60 bucks. Uh, I don't want to pay 60 bucks for her 16 year old. That's insane. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, you know, but then, uh, so I, like, one of the great things about being a journalist and having, um, you know, sort of, I've got, a you know, my feet planted, at, you know, as an editor in certain places, but uh, but always able to, you know, freelance or, or write about what I'm interested in. Uh, it just happened. You know, I was doing some freelance work for The Atlantic, um, the website for The Atlantic, and my editor there uh, Corby Cummer, who's also a food guy, he and I got to talking about whiskey and he said, you know, this is probably 2008, 2009, 2008, really. And he said, ah, oh, you know, whiskey's getting pretty popular. It would be really great if you could write some stuff, you know, write up some, you know, write up some of your visits to distilleries. Um, you know, if there's any sort of storylines you can pull out. Uh, so I started doing that. And then in 2010, when I moved to the New York times, I just started, you know, started writing for the food section. And, you know, I was, I was very, very lucky that I came along at the right time, uh, where, you know, honestly, I was still learning a lot about whiskey. Um, it was not in an industry that, you know, we didn't have podcasts. We didn't have shows like yours. We didn't have a lot of, you know, there just wasn't much information out there, uh, particularly reliable information. And so, you know, so I was both gleaning all of that, but then also, writing about it and getting it out there. And, and, uh, you know, then, um, some folks approached me about doing a book and that 
became kind of my my thing for a little while was working on the book and then getting the book out there. But then that fed, you know, that sort of established me in a certain place. Uh, and then that fed my journalism, which fed the need to do another book, which, you know, became this kind of, vir- you know, sort of virtuous cycle. And here I am. Uh, but it's been, it's fun. I mean, it's very different from what I do in my, you know, quote unquote day job. Uh, and that's, that's pretty sustaining for me, uh, to kind of do politics editing and, and, you know, really work on news during the day or, you know, in my, in the main, but then also, uh, you know, in the evenings or, you know, for low cutaways like this, uh, to focus on, focus on whiskey. We all need that break. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it, you know I get asked sometimes like, well, you know, how do you work a full time job and then also do this uh, this amount of stuff on the side or you know as well? Maybe it's not on the side, but do this as well. And it's it's to me, it's sort of like uh, it's just working different muscles, you know. And it, you can go to the gym one day and really you know do uh, you know work on your abs one day or work on your core, and the next day come back and you know do a lower body workout and really you know not particular you know feel particularly exhausted because you're just working different muscles plus sleep is really overrated yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what absolutely. was one of your what was one of your favorite early pieces that you wrote when you're working for the food section and writing for it um i mean the first one i did that i was kind of proud of uh or i was proud of i was happy with the piece but really took off in a way that was telling and this was probably an early 2013, I was right, it was January 2013, I wrote a piece about American single malt. And just, you know, it was sort of, uh, it wasn't, it was one of those stories, and this is what I look for when I'm writing for the Times, is, you know, it wasn't a story that people on the inside, you know, found news, you know, found new at all. You know, we all knew that American single malt was a thing. Uh, but for people outside the industry and outside of kind of these circles, uh, I think it, it was revelatory. Uh, the idea that there were people making single malt that was, you know, really good. And I think at that point, you know, Balcones had won a bunch of awards uh, with their with their single malt, you know, international awards, not just American stuff, but really gotten some international acclaim. And so that was a great sort of hook to say, well, you know, look at Balcones. They're doing this great single malt and they're not alone. There are all sorts of people. And in fact, there is a history where, you know, in the 80s, people were making single malt, you know, McCarthy's and, uh, and St. George, they were making single malt. Uh, so, you know, and now you get all these new, dis- so anyway, it's sort of all tied together really well. Uh, and it, you know, it's a good piece, but it did it, the readership for it was sort of out of control. And, and to me, it sort of signaled that there was both a lot of interest, uh, you know, in whiskey journalism generally, you know, generally speaking, but also a lot of interest among general readers for information about sort of what's cool, what's up and coming in American whiskey. So in terms of early pieces, that was one that I was really uh, pretty happy with. That's awesome. And, you know, it's it's funny that, I mean, it's just like pulling on the ride train a little bit here. I think single malt, American single malt, get even less attention than that. Yeah. And there's some, there's some fantastic ones out oh, there that amazing. I've had. It's just it's just not the buzzword of bourbon right now. Well, yeah, and and you think about the ones that the distilleries that I was pulling out, you know, Balcon. I mean, Balcones continues to do great stuff, but you know, this was when Westland was just getting off the ground, and now if you were to go back and write that piece, you'd write it all about Westland, uh, or maybe you know, or or some other folks who have come along even more recently. But uh, but that's how rapidly it's changed. I mean, today we think of when you think of American single malt as a term. 
you probably think of Westland. Uh, you know, certainly in terms of who's really killing it out there. You think of Westland, they weren't really even on the map in early 2013. I mean, they were getting going, but uh, but they were not um, they were not what they've become. So let's switch gears a little bit because I think we're going to make people really jealous. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So let's switch gears a little bit because I think we're going to make people really jealous Considering that you have a new book coming out called The Impossible Collection of Whiskey, The 100 Most Exceptional and Collectible Bottles. So, out of the 100 that are in there, did you try every single one of them? No. I wish, man. I mean, these, you know, this is a, the background of the story is, so, uh, the publisher, Asseline, is a, um, you know, it's a company that makes really beautiful, large format, uh, high-end books. And they have... Uh, they do all kinds of things, but they have a series, uh, so the Impossible series. And basically, they get people, you know, like myself, uh, uh, to kind of curate a list, uh, kind of a dream list of 100 whatevers. So there's a cigar book. Uh, so, you, you know, someone who really knows cigars, uh, he picked 100 cigars that he would love to have in his collection. Um, and, you know, there, there are a couple of wine books. There's an American wine book. There's a general wine book. And so, you know, my task here was, you know, they approached me because, yeah, I mean, I have tried many of the whiskeys that are in my list, but the idea was not to say, well, you know, of the ones you have tasted, what is on this list? It's more like, what is your dream list uh, of anything? So, you know, we've got the, you know, 1926 Macallans on there that are, uh, have recently set all kinds of records at auction uh, you've got, you know, black Bowmore, white Bowmore, gold Bowmore. Uh, you know, these are bottles or there are only a couple of them left in existence. And um, but do, would I want them in my dream collection? No doubt. Of course I would. 
So, so that, it was a lot of fun. And I got to say that the, uh, coming up with a list of 50 was relatively easy. You know, like what are the 50 bottles that have to be in there? And, and then the next 100. So getting up to 150 was a little harder. But then the hardest thing was pairing back from 150 uh, to 100, and particularly from like 115 to 100, because you know it's kind of arbitrary at a certain point. Um, they gave me a lot of room to bring my own uh, idiosyncrasies into it. So you know there are bottles on there that you know at the end of the day they're not going to fetch the kind of auction prices that say Black Bowmore does, but they're things that you know, are important to me and my kind of worldview. Uh, you know, I, so I included the, um, you know, Elmer T. Lee hundred year, uh, you know, his centennial bottle. Um, you know, is it very recent release too? very yeah. recent release? You know, is it, uh, you know, will time test that one as a bottle that needs to be on a list? I mean, I don't know. Would anyone else pick that bottle? I don't know. But to me, he's such an important figure. Uh, Elmer T. Lee, the bottle, uh, the the expression is really important. And the bottle, I think that centennial release tells a really important story. Uh, it tells an important story about Buffalo Trace. It tells an important story about um, about American whiskey. And, you know, and it is a fantastic whiskey. So, you know, I, I want to say that the, the list is 99% of, well, 99%, uh, let's say 90% of what's in that list is, uh, uh, you know, hopefully is not, re- people wouldn't really argue with me. Uh, but, you know, I definitely included a few in there that are um, idiosyncratic because that's just where my where my interests are. I also included, you know, there's a smattering of uh, non-Scotch, non-Japanese international stuff because I think that's, that's a place where uh, we are going to see a lot of change over the next, you know, generation or two where we're going to have global, global whiskey will really come into its own. Uh, particularly stuff coming, you know, we know all this, right? Coming out of uh, uh, Taiwan, India, Australia. You know, these are places where you've got some pretty fantastic distilling going on, and going into the future, you, it's there's no reason not to believe that it's you know it's just going to get a lot better. So I included those as sort of almost just flags to say, okay, watch, keep an eye on you know on you know, Kavalon, keep an eye on Amrut because these are great whiskeys and in the future, they're going to be that much better. So I'm always just like buried deep into bourbon and I can't even get my head above the water with bourbon. How are you able to sit there and start venturing around to, you know, scotches and Japanese and all these other kinds of things? Because people have always said like, why don't you start scotch pursuit? And, (laughs) you know, wine pursuit. And I mean, we could do pursuits for everything, but I'm just like, I don't have the time in the day to figure it all out. Yeah. I mean, you know, fortunately I had done my scotch book, so I feel like, yeah, I know scotch pretty well. Uh, certainly know, know the American whiskey scene pretty well. Um, you know, I mean, Japanese whiskey was a challenge for me, uh, just because that's an area where I was probably not as, uh, I mean, I know what the good bottles are. I know who the right distilleries are. I know the stories. But just in terms of telling a fine grain story and actually, you know, which bottles of Kurosawa need to be on this list and which ones, you know, don't. Which uh, which of uh, Ichiro's whiskeys need to be on the list and which ones don't. Um, you know, that was that took a little bit of time. Um, you know, for other places, it was a little bit, you know, the, the, look, just to be honest, the, the luxury offerings are not that... Um, are not that numerous. So it was relatively easy to pick out, you know, what's, which, which Kavalon should I include? 
you know, which, uh, what Australian whiskey should I include? They're not that many. Uh, hopefully that, you know, there will be, but, uh, you know, so that, that made it a little easier. Um, you know, Irish whiskey was another one that I feel like I needed to bone up a lot on in terms of, you know, yeah, I know the scene. I know the, uh, I know the people it's not, you know, there aren't at the moment, there aren't that many, you know, kind of established distilleries. Nevertheless, you know, trying to figure out, well, if I wanted to include four or five Irish whiskeys on this list, which ones? Well, that's something I really need to dig down into. Uh, but, you know, with, I mean, it helped that I knew kind of off the top of my head which bourbons I wanted to include, which, which bourbons and which ryes I wanted to include. That said, winnowing that list down was, was really tough. That's where the tough work comes in. Yeah. Now, when you were including the bourbons, I mean, were there like certain vintages that you looked at, be like, oh, yes, the 1967, very, very old Fitzgerald that came in this one, you know, yeah. not even, it was a pint. Yeah, like, yeah, like the you, very, very old Fitzgerald that was bottled for the, um, uh, what's her name? It's for the, the uh, it has the the Blackhawk on it. Oh, yes, the, yeah. the ice hockey. NHL yeah, the, yeah right. Um, you know, I, I included that very specific one because I wanted to tell that story. Um, I thought uh, by the way... I know the story, but maybe the listeners don't. People that are kind of getting new into bourbon, kind of give them a kind of a little bit of background on like how iconic this is. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, uh, so this is, you know, Stitzel Weller. They're doing, you know, very, very old Fitzgerald. And, you know, at the time they were doing some, uh, you know, they were doing special bottlings for people. And the, um, oh man, uh, the family is, it's the Metz family or... Uh, the big family that owns, um, uh, here it is, the Wirtz family. Sorry about that. Uh, so they own a big liquor distributor in Chicago, and they also own the Blackhawks. And so they, you know, asked Sitzel Weller if they would, you know, create a special bottling just for them and put the Blackhawks logo on it. And and they did. And it's just, you know, it's become this iconic bottle in, in kind of American whiskey history. Um, yeah, I mean, I did that. Like, Old, um, you know, National Distillers era, uh, um, old granddad, um, you know, old, uh, like, you know, 60s, you know, early 70s, wild turkey. You know, these are, you know, I think for most people, they consider like, yeah, those are those are bottling golden era bottlings, you know, golden age of whiskey bottlings. And so I want to include those. Uh, there's a good amount of stuff from, you know, Willet coming through in the, you know, you know, nineties and two thousands where, you know, I mean, we know, you know, all they're doing, uh, you know, first bottlings for, you know, under someone else's label. Uh, and then the Willett family estate that comes on, uh, a little later on, you know, these are also, you know, very specific time periods where you really have to, you know, be very careful. Like, you know, Jefferson's, um, early Jefferson's when they were still bottling that, that, uh, Stitzel Weller stuff they had. But, you know, there was a very particular point in time when Trey ran out of that Stitzel Weller. And, you know, you have to. And so, you know, as I'm talking to him, talking to other people really figured out, you know, OK, well, and, and actually he's not exactly sure when that was. So, you know, you sort of I had to <laughs> had to hedge that a little bit, but also make it clear that the bottle I'm talking about or the 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 line, you know, the, the vintages I'm talking about is very specific, you know, so it's not just Jefferson's 18 of any vintage. It's a very specific vintage. So yeah, you get into that. And it's a little weird to talk about that from, you know, not weird, but I think people who think that whiskey is always whiskey because, you know, it's it's not a vintage product like wine. 
you, you know, you really have to explain the importance of history and the importance of change and how change happens at distilleries to explain, like, this is why wild, you know, wild turkey today tastes very, you know, 101 tastes different today than it did uh, 30, you know, 50 years ago. And, uh, and here's why you need to seek out those bottles. Um, even though 101 is great today, but, you know, whiskey from, you know, 101 from back then is just mm, very special. I mean, you could write a whole book just on like how people were sourcing all this stuff from like Stutzel Weller and everywhere. And then hear the stories. I'm sure when you talk to Trey, we've asked him before and he was like, if I would have known, I would have bought every barrel that I had available to me back then. I know. I want to, uh, one of the other book projects I'm working on is uh, um, a book for 10 Speed Press about, you know, Kentucky distilling. And it's not a review book, but it is, it will have profiles and history. And, and I, I plan, I hope to get into a lot of that with that book, because you're right. That's a, that period in the eighties and nineties, you know, late eighties, early nineties, where, you know, it's, it's really, you get these people, you know, it's Trey and it's, it's Julian Van Winkle and it's Marcy Palatella and, you know, and, and, you know, the Colesfiend starting to get involved where it was really an export market. You know, it's really about, well, what can we bottle for Japan? Uh, and then, you know, to some extent, what do we bottle for Europe? And, oh, you know, people are starting to get into this stuff in the U.S. And, you know, but it's starting from a very low base. And so how do you approach that? And and there wasn't really the sophisticated supply lines and, and marketing. And so, uh, you know, you get this very small group of people who are really creating the, the and, and they're separate from what folks like Elmer T. Lee and Booker were doing at the established distilleries where they're starting to do their small batch and single barrel innovations. Um, you know, then you also have this kind of small, you know, smaller, you know, family oriented distilleries that are starting to do all kinds of cool stuff. But you're right. It's, they weren't distilling. They were bottling what they had. Uh, they were bottling some of these amazing whiskeys that were just sitting out there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine if you had gone back in time if you could go back in time and tell them, like, by the way, what you have, <laughs> you know, <laughs> watch. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah. Hop on the DeLorean and change that real quick. Oh, man. Bring some back. Yeah. I mean, you break up a really good point with Japan because that was one of the saving graces of American whiskey of being able to kind of keep a lot of these distilleries afloat. I mean, you look at something like when Heaven Hill came out with Martin Mills 23 year, you know, that was a that was an export only type of product, you know, that was that sort of market was really big on on high age statements and everything like that. And that's what, I mean, to be fair, that's what kind of also got rid of their old stocks that they couldn't mm -hmm. sell here. Yeah. I mean, uh, Marcy uh, Palatella, who created Very Old St. Nick, uh, she has this really funny story about um, how when she started, because she was just looking for bourbon to export. She had, you know, was exporting wine and all this, and there was interest from Japanese retailers and Japanese consumers and some old American whiskey. And so she bought, um, you know, she bought a supply of really old stuff. And uh, the idea was that it was going to be for a Christmas release. And so she just came up with the name. She said, ah, you know, we'll call it Very Old St. Nick and I'll draw a picture of, or we'll get, you know, someone to draw a picture of, uh, you know, kind of an old timey Santa Claus and uh, we'll stick that on the label. And then uh, it was delayed and they didn't really have it ready until the spring. And so she got back to her, her suppliers, or I mean, she got back to her, her consumers and the retailers and said, look, you know, I'm really sorry. It's called Very Old St. Nick, but it's, you know, it's kind of this Christmas theme and I can change it if you want. And they said, look, no one in Japan cares. Like, none of that <laughs> means anything to them. They just need a good name. 
uh, and you know some cool cover, some cool label art, and uh, no one's going to think too much about it. And it's really about what's inside that matters. And of course, you know, we know this is you know sort of became this very quickly this kind of legendary expression uh, or line of expressions. And you know, but yeah, it it uh, it's it's kind of cool to go back and hear those stories and think, yeah, not a lot of marketing thought went into it. It was just. You know, here's some good stuff that we know is not going to sell in the U.S., but God, they want it in Japan. And yeah, of course, eventually it all sort of boomeranged back. Yeah, eventually. And then people would go to trips to Okinawa and load up and then put put it on their plane back home. And now you see big collections at home. People are now jealous of them. I know. I know. It was one of those. I just, again, like, I wish I'd known. (laughs) We all do. And so I guess uh, that's a good question for you. Like, say, say that you had like one of your top, you know, I said, you know, you said you took 50 was come up with the easy part. I'm sure figuring out that top 10 was even harder to kind of figure out like, what is that going to be? Yeah. But, I mean, I didn't rank them. So that was, that's, that was a saving grace. Like, how would you rank these? Um, okay. So it's not a click. No, click no, it's kind not of like one through a hundred and this is the best. Um, that would be, uh, you know, on some, uh, look, on some level that would be, kind of easy because there are rankings out there and you can just sort of look and say okay well most people think you know black bowmore is is the best so i'm just gonna put black bowmore is the best but you know if you're a bourbon fan and you look at this book you know that doesn't mean anything to you and you're asking well why isn't you know a church a 16 year old on there uh why isn't that number one because that's what i think is number one uh so fortunately i could kind of sidestep that and just say here are a hundred. I'm not going to make a call on what's the best. Um, you know, but I do include in my write-ups, you know, there are certain places where I tip my hat and say, well, you know, Linnell's Red Hook Rye, arguably the best rye ever made, ever bottled. I don't know. I've had it. It's amazing. Um, you know, people, you know, more like people say this is the best. So I'm just going to put that out there for someone to read and, you know, assess on their own. Um, but I'm not going to, put that up against some some other amazing rye or or let alone another you know some amazing scotch and say well Linnell's you know red hook rye is better than you know white bowmore that sort of meaningless thing to say it's apples and oranges sometimes. absolutely absolutely so let's say well we'll try to we'll try to put you in a scenario to see where your uh where your values lie here so if you had so say you had a black bowmore you had a Linnell, and we'll just say something else how hard would it be to open it nowadays? Would you would you would you sit there and look at it and be like, you know what, this whiskey was made to be enjoyed, or you're like, well, it also fetches a pretty good penny at an auction. So, so I am uh, I I deal with this dilemma a lot because um, while I did not buy everything I should have back in the day, um, I did buy a lot, and and I'm um, on the one hand, I will not sell that stuff. Like that's not, I've never thought of it. Uh, you know, I, the only thing I do is, you know, I'm curious sometimes about the, you know, what value it might, you know, what price it might fetch, but I'm not never interested. Now, my wife will always say that it's sort of, you know, it's our ballast. It's like, if everything else goes south, we've got that collection, which I guess is probably one way to look at it. At the same time, I, uh, I am a pack rat and I am, uh, someone who never quite gets around to opening those special bottles because I'm always like, well, is this, is this occasion special enough to open that bottle? I know. I mean, I know I'm right there with you. You know, if I, you know, this bottle means a lot to me and, and I'm going to open it someday, but is it, you know, because I've also got this other stuff that's really awesome, 
and maybe that's more appropriate for the moment, right? So I end up with this, uh, this you know, stockpile that it's not going anywhere, but it's also not being opened anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I figure, look, once once we're all out of uh, lockdown and you know, COVID's over, maybe I'll have some have a bunch of folks over and we'll we'll crack open a bunch of them. Um, that would, that one, would certainly be maybe just one, maybe, maybe just, just one. one. I mean, that would certainly <laughs> be an occasion. So, yeah. uh, but I do this, look, I do the same thing with, I'm not much of a wine collector, but you know, I've got some decent bottles of wine. I don't open those. Don't know why. Uh, those actually, I have to open at some point because you know, they will turn, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, that's just my mind. That's just my mentality. My, my kind of hang up. Uh, it's certainly not the case that I'm all right, when this bottle hits whatever on the market, I'm going to dump it. Um, yeah. I'm, and, and my collection is not, you know, you look at some, some folks and you look at their, their bunkers or, you know, whatever's sitting behind them on the, the podcast and, you know, and they'll have a very well organized, like, you know, that they have systematically gone through Buffalo trace and they have collected everything that Buffalo trace has made. That's worth collecting. And I'm not like that. My collection is very haphazard. Um, why I have one thing and not the other is, um, you know, I can't explain. I'm, I'm kind of with you. We, we might be in the uh, kind of kindred spirits with that because whenever I have to take a bottle off the shelf, there's always another bottle that comes in the mail or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, well, I don't need to go open one of these right away. Yeah. I'll just hang on to it till whenever. And then my wife comes down and she's like, Kenny, you've got bottles here from like, 2012 that or literally you wrote the date on the back of it like you ever going to open this i'm like "Uh, that's a good question i'm not too sure yeah yeah exactly and um i don't know what what uh yeah what's going to be the reason to do it and i I don't know so they will all be consumed at one you know one one thing i did and this is a funny story i'll just go off on a tangent for a second so my daughter's name is talia and uh the um a distillery in in scotland came out uh, this was their um, kind of relaunch, and they came out with uh, some extra age expressions. They came out with a 24-year-old whiskey that they called Talia. So I bought, you know, they didn't release in the U.S. I had to hunt it down on auction site, and I bought this bottle. And uh, so I was really excited. You know, here I've got this Talia whiskey. And uh, so when she's old enough, she can, that's hers. And then my son, his name's Elliot, and, uh, you know, he starts, he looks at me with these sad eyes. It's like, well, you know, is there an Elliot whiskey? God, okay. uh, and then of course there is right there's the brent elliott select uh when when brent uh first got it got to four roses he came out with his own expression and i was like bingo okay i've got that and i found a bottle of that and you know bought it and and then to make it to put a spin on it you know brent was uh he was doing a swing through new york and I was like, oh great okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna go meet brent and uh, you know he's i'll get him to sign the bottle it'll be awesome right so you know i meet up with him and he's a great guy I mean, really one of my favorite guys in in distilling and uh, you know he wrote you know from elliot to elliot and it was like you know he was really into it so so i brought the bottle home and i showed my son see not only do you have this whiskey uh, this elliot whiskey but it's signed and which my daughter with you know the same sheepish looks so can you who's gonna sign my bottle <laughs> oh man all right well i guess i gotta go to scotland now <laughs> all right yeah, fine yeah. it's a trip i'll do it it's, yeah right yeah worse there are worse things worse errands to have to go on yeah well maybe when she's of age then you just take her with you yeah and you just kind of enjoy it together yeah. on the trip or something yeah that's the idea 
I guess the, the second hardest part is actually making sure your kids are really going to like whiskey at that age too. I know. I know. It's, uh, you know, I've been training them well, uh, but obviously uh, by osmosis, um, just kind of uh, getting them used to the idea of whiskey without actually giving them any whiskey. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But, uh, you know, it's their bottle to do with what they want, you know, and hopefully they'll hopefully they will wait until they can appreciate it before they consume it. But we'll see. <laughs> and so kind of like last question as we start wrapping up here. Now that you are covering politics, you kind of try to find yourself drinking more whiskey more often to try to uh, drown out everything that happens in this world? Uh, I am uh, glad. No, no. Um, you know, it's uh, it's more like I still. it makes me just look forward to that glass a little more than uh, than I might have in the past. Um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I don't know. It's it's not really the. It's not really the, the the whiskey itself. It's more like the world of whiskey. And so what I look forward to is, you know, things like this. Like, this is a lot of fun. And 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 doing, you know, interviews with folks, uh, you know, working on my side projects. Like, that's really what I look forward to. Uh, it's I love my day job. I love working on politics. But it's often, um, you know, that thought of, okay, once I sign off, once I'm done with the day, I'm going to sit down and write out my notes. I, I had a long call with uh, Drew Kulsveen last week. We kind of just, you know, just catching up, talking about Willet. And, uh, you know, so I'm going to write, you know, work through my notes from that interview. And like, that's a, that's something I can look forward to. It's work, but it's different work. And so that's, that's the thing that I, uh, that really, you know, makes me smile during the day. You got to have something that pays the bills and pays the insurance. Then you got everything else that you enjoy. Yeah. So kinda... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, look, and, I, and I'm lucky enough that, that it's something where uh, I really enjoy it and, and I can be, I like being productive and, and I like knowing that, you know, this will turn into something that, you know, uh, isn't just for my own enjoyment, but whether it's an interview like this one or, or a book or an article, you know, it's something that the fruits of my enjoyment will be someone else's enjoyment. And to me that you really can't get much better than that for me. Absolutely. And I think in, in everything you're doing, whether it's on the politics side and the whiskey side, you know, you've touched a lot of people, you've educated a lot of people, uh, especially on the whiskey side. Uh, so really looking forward to the new book, The Impossible Collection of Whiskey, the 100 Most Exceptional and Collectible Bottles. So Clay, I want to say thank you so much for for coming on the show today and really sharing some of your your history and your side of the story here. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I, I really I love the show and, and, you know, big admirer of yours. So it's uh, it's it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you so much. And if people want to find out more about you, they want to follow you on social media, where do they do that? Uh, yeah, I've got a, a half-decent website, clayrisen.com, but you can follow me on social media pretty much everywhere. I'm at R-I-S-E-N-C, Risen C. Uh, check it out. I'm around. Hit me. I'll I'll get cool. back to you. <laughs> That's uh, Twitter's the easiest way. You're like, you see the, you see the replies, and you're like, okay, I'll go ahead yeah. and reply. Replies. Yeah, exactly. Well, awesome. Clay, thank you much for, for joining us today. And make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. We're there too. And if you do like the show, want to support us, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. Cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week.